Kids, we need your voice. You know what's so frustrating? I can't control God. Uh, shucks. Uh, that's pretty obvious. I obviously say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but I do think that that's a real dynamic for us. Because I think there's a time and a place uh, where we find ourselves longing for God. We find ourselves longing to commune with God or to engage with God or for something to happen. And the fact that we can't control God, we can't uh, get God to fit into the box that we want God to, can actually be incredibly frustrating. Uh, I, I know it seems like that's kind of a surface level thing, but I think there's actually a lot of depth to what we're, we're talking about with this idea of control and that we can't control God. And sometimes it's unintentional uh, in trying to control God. Uh, last week, Pastor Britta kind of beautifully talked about sometimes the very frustrating process of preaching. And that uh, Pastor Britta and I, we really seek to be faithful uh, to discern what God is speaking, to discern what God would have us say to the, the congregation, to the community. Uh, and so we wrestle with these things. And I'm, uh, as I've talked about before, I'm a, a planned kind of, uh, I like process. I like things, right? And so I find uh, sometimes when something's effective, I try to reconstruct the scenario for God to move again, right? Like I try to kind of re reset up the, the framework of what's happening so that I can hear from God because it worked before. So a couple weeks ago, uh, I was having, I was kind of wrestling with this sermon and I wasn't quite sure. So I went for a walk and this week I was wrestling with the sermon again, because this is just becoming habit. Uh, and so I was like, well, should I go for a walk? Should I reconstruct the scenario so that God will move and speak in the way that I think God and move should speak? But here's the thing. We don't control how or when or what God will do. We don't control God. Right? This week it happened to come while I was brushing my teeth in a way I never would have expected. Right? Like just here I am brushing my teeth and this started to kind of come together. This sermon is also, as Pastor Britta talked about last week, like the third or fourth or fifth iteration. My, everything is completely changed what we're talking about this morning. And it's because we don't control God, even though we, we don't necessarily, like we know that intellectually. But sometimes we want God to do what we want God to do. I think this is especially poignant in times in our lives and as a, a shared community when things are beyond our control or when things are out of control. The last couple of years, uh, so much has been beyond our control. And these last two weeks, so much is out of our control. When we find ourselves wrestling with all of this violence, all of this loss and this pain and this grief from all of these shootings and from all that is happening. It can feel like everything is out of control. And in these moments, it can be even more frustrating. Like, God, why won't you listen? Why won't you show up like I think you should show up? Why won't you move like I know that you should move? This is incredibly painful. This is incredibly hard and frustrating. And I named this reality not because I think there are easy answers. Not because I think what we're going to talk about this morning will necessarily put a band-aid on this significant issue of how, how do we reconcile the reality of the pain and the suffering and the loss and the grief of this world with a God I can't control when I so long to have God move. But I name this reality because I think there's something important for us to discover as we learn together that we don't control God. God's ways are way beyond our ways. 
But that's why on Wednesday we felt the importance to do something called lament. Because lament doesn't fix problems. It, didn't, it doesn't fix things, but it does form something in us. There's something that happens when we bring our pain and our grief, our longing, when we mourn with those who mourn, when we grieve with those who grieve, and we allow ourselves to be open to the presence of God, that God does something in us. God forms something in us. Most often, it doesn't go the way that we'd expect. A lot of times, it doesn't go the way that we think it should. And so there's this this strange relationship, this relationship I want to dig into this morning between control and what forms in us. Because understandably, we want to have some level of control, some handle, because when things are beyond our control or out of our control, it's like we need, like it, it makes it harder. It's like we want to be more tight-fisted to control these things. And in fact, I think there's this invitation for us that we come in these spaces where we are so out of control and God gently opens up our hand to be open to the presence of God when it is beyond us. So there's this relationship between control and what God forms in us. And I want to explore that with us this morning. Uh, We are in uh, this series on the book of Acts, and we're actually going to be looking at the book of Acts uh, all through the rest of the summer. Now, uh, the book of Acts is this continuation of a story uh, that we hear in the New Testament. So the New Testament kind of gives witness to Jesus and and everything kind of beyond that. And the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, excuse me, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are these four Gospels that tell different perspectives. They give kind of a multifaceted view of what's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. And they all kind of reach this high point with Jesus' death and resurrection, which we celebrate on Easter. And so then uh, we continue from Luke's perspective in the book of Acts. And so last week, Pastor Britta, she preached from the very beginning of the book of Acts and this ascension of Jesus. So you have uh, kind of this arc, this narrative arc where Jesus has died, had been resurrected, appeared to his disciples, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. And next week, we celebrate one of my favorite times of the year, which is Pentecost. And Pentecost is the recognition that the Spirit of God fell on all people, well beyond their control, but to give them a a sense of guidance and direction and advocacy to be with the people, to help move the people in ways they never would have expected. But again, for like the second time in a row, I'm preaching on the waiting passage. I'm like, really? Like a waiting passage again? Because it's this, this story this morning is kind of this liminal space. It's this space between. Jesus has ascended into heaven and the spirit of God has not yet fallen on the people on Pentecost. And we find ourselves again in this in-between space with the disciples. And what are the disciples left to do in this waiting place? And what are the disciples to do? Because they can't control God. But what do they do in this waiting? What do they do in this space that feels sometimes so without anchor? And so this morning, I think there are um, some significant kind of ideas of what the disciples do in the waiting that help us understand how we engage in this season of waiting and this waiting for the Spirit of God to move in a way that we can't control, but a way that we can be open and receptive to. Now, uh, kind of ironically, uh, I'm going to preach a three-point sermon And I typically have kind of shied away from three-point sermons because I think three-point sermons can sometimes feel like kind of an easy fix. It can kind of feel like you do this, this, and this, and then everything is all good. And we know that that isn't reality, right? There aren't easy answers to this. But I do think these three points will actually kind of be a foundational uh, space for us 
for what these things do so that we can then learn from that place and, and that those three things form something in us. They're not the end goal, but there's an intentionality in these three things that help move us forward. So uh, we'll get to what those three points are in just a minute, but we'll, we'll read through this passage. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. Again, it's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, the words will be up on the screen as well. Acts t- uh, 1, beginning in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, for those that don't know, these are 11 of the 12 apostles. So all 11 are gathered there. One isn't present. We'll find out about that in just a second. So all 11 apostles are present in this time. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With a pavement he received for his wickedness, Judas, who was the 12th apostle, bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Yikes. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are three elements of this story, of this passage, this transitionary story from Jesus' ascension into heaven and the the, uh, impartation of the Spirit of God on the people of God. And these three elements of this story of what the apostles do in the waiting when things are beyond their control. They can't control when God will move or speak. But what they do, I think, are helpful for us to understand what we do in these seasons of waiting, in these in-between times when things aren't in our control, but how do we allow ourselves to be open to the presence of God. The three things I think the disciples do that are helpful for us this morning is they first pray together continually. It says they joined together and were constantly in prayer. So they pray together. They engage with the scriptures. Peter talks about how these scriptures engaged with the story of Judas and how that intersected with their story. And so they engage with scripture. And the final thing that they do is they discern the will of God together. Now that's kind of an interesting one. We'll get to that in just a little bit because there's some unique things happening there. But the three things I think that the, the disciples do that are helpful frameworks for us, this three-point sermon... They engage in prayer constantly together. 
They engage in the scriptures, and they discern the will of God together. So this first point, they prayed together continually. Now, I will admit, when I hear this story, that these disciples were up in the room praying together constantly, or this admonition we hear in scripture to pray continually, I feel pretty inadequate. Because I have in my mind this vision of them all on their knees, and their hands folded, their eyes closed, and they're bowing down, and they're praying to God, like, forever. They never stop. And I do think that certainly was a part of what was happening there, right? What was happening amongst the, the 120 believers who were gathered. But if you go back and look at the, the way that the New Testament was originally written, so I do this all the time because I actually think this is really important. I go back and look at uh, the Bible was not written in English, right? So there are things between us and Scripture we don't understand because of the language that we speak isn't the language that was spoken then or the language that it was written in. So the New Testament is written in Greek. And so when you go back and uncover these uh, kind of the original language, there's some nuances to what's being said there that open up our understanding so that we can have uh, a better openness to the presence of God. And so uh, as it's written in the original Greek, this kind of idea they join together constantly in prayer actually has a number of different uh, words in there, obviously. But they also do this thing that's like I think is fascinating. Uh, they take these words and they kind of mash them together. So there are these like words that are a couple of different words put together to kind of really emphasize a point. And there's actually a couple, like three of them in this phrase, they join together constantly in prayer. So the first thing of this idea of, of constantly, this idea of c consistency, uh, is this word that gets mashed together and it has these two connotations of consistent and constant attention and strength. So when it says that they were consistent, it's, it's they have a strength of attention. Right? So they have this strength and attention. These things get put together. They have strong attention. Now, something we actually don't have in some of our English translations is this other word mash that uh, has this uh, translation of with one mind. So they have strong attention with one mind. Now, this idea of with one mind uh, kind of echoes back to something we did in the book of Philippians as we talked about like-mindedness which means they don't have all the same thoughts. They're not all thinking exactly the same thing, but they have the same frame of mind. It's how are they going to think about these things together? So they have strong attention with one mind, with the same kind of mindset, with the same frame of mind, and then it says to prayer. Now, I love this word for prayer because this word for prayer is often translated also as worship, and it's another word mash. And it uses this uh, kind of phrase, to or towards, pros, at the beginning. And then it has this little modifier that means good or goodness. And so the prayer that they're talking about, this worship, this being constantly together in prayer, is a word that means to or towards the goodness of God. That's, like, mind-blowing to me when I think about prayer, right? Because prayer, I, I so often associate... Fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your heads. That's what prayer, this is the image of prayer I have in my head. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a significant portion of prayer. But as prayer is being talked about here, it is to or towards the goodness of God. And so taken all together, this joining together constantly in prayer is actually, they had strong attention with the same frame of mind towards the goodness of God. They had strong attention with the same mindset towards the goodness of God. So as they gathered together at a, a meal around the table, they had strong attention with one mind towards the goodness of God. 
as they were engaged in other conversations or in, in interacting with each other, they had strong attention with the same mind towards the goodness of God. I think this is incredibly formational for us as people. For us to be a community who seek to join together constantly in prayer, it is for us to have strong attention with the same frame of mind to be to or towards the goodness of God. This is both way more intimidating, but also seems a lot more feasible to me. That I can't go up into an upper room and just pray all the time, even as a pastor, believe it or not. But that this is an invitation for us that how are we having a strength of attention with the same frame of mind that pushes us to or towards the goodness of God. So that's the first thing. They pray together. They have strong attention towards the goodness of God. The second thing it says that they do is they engage with the scriptures. Now, I have to be kind of honest and transparent here. I'm not fully confident what Peter is doing in this kind of uh, scriptural illusion and connection. Uh, in my study and in my research, uh, it wasn't immediately clear to me why Peter called on these two passages from Psalms to talk about what happens with Judas. It's not perfectly clear to me. I'm, I know, I'm sure there's a reason. It just, I didn't find it. It didn't make sense to me. But I think there's a couple values that are important for us. You see, what Peter does is Peter takes what they're presently experiencing, how their life is presently, and he interprets how that's impacted by Scripture. Right? I think sometimes what we want to do is we want the one-to-one -one correlation. Where in Habakkuk 4.17 does it tell us about what's happening here in our present reality? And certainly Peter does that to a degree. But I think what's important here, the value that we're understanding, is Peter helps frame for the people. He helps frame for the apostles and the disciples how their present circumstances are informed by the scriptures. How what they are experiencing now has been formational in their understanding of God's story with them. You see, this isn't a rule book. It's not an answer book. It's the story of God. And so Peter helps them look back on the story of God to inform their present story. This is a formational way to engage in Scripture. Now, the other part to this that I want to uh, hold before you as a wondering, uh, because nobody else made this comment. So this is kind of a Paul original. Uh, so... There's always a danger in that, that maybe I'm theologically far. Here we go. I'm going to hold that wondering with you because I think it's an interesting wondering. Verses 18 and 19 are kind of this very strange aside to me that talk about how Judas dies. And it's pretty graphic. And it actually doesn't fall in line with the other accounts we hear about how Judas died. And so it's gotten me kind of wondering, why is this included here? This interpretation of scripture, how are these things connected to each other? Now, because of who I am as a person and why this is my wondering with all of you this morning. Uh, there's a word that's my absolute favorite word in Greek uh, that's used here. And it's the word splagizomai. And splagizomai has to do with the inwardmost part in your gut, your very being. Now, the word splagizomai is often used metaphorically to talk about the inwardmost part of who we are. That it's, it's not just something in our head, and it's like moving into the very essence of our being, right? Now, in this particular instance, with Judas, his splagizomai is on display for all to see. The inwardmost part of his being. Now, I wonder, I wonder, was there intentionality with Luke, who wrote this book, was there intentionality to call on that metaphor from splagizomai? 
that the very essence of who Judas was, the, the deepest part of him, this isn't passing judgment on Judas, it's just the very essence of who Judas was, was exposed for all to see through the interpretation of Scripture. You see what happens there, right? We hear this kind of graphic story about how Judas is, in some ways, like the, the deepest parts of him are on display for all to see, and then Peter translates that, or he helps frame that with the use of Scripture. I think that Scripture reveals the deepest parts of who we are, right? Because Scripture isn't a, a rule book. It's not a law book. It's a formational tool that God uses to speak God's words to highlight and enlighten the deepest parts of who we are. And to bring those things into the light, to share those things in community constantly in prayer, that we might be formed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus together. Now, this is just a wondering. I, I can't say for sure this is what's being, what, what Luke's idea was. I'm not Luke. I don't have insight into his brain. But I do think there's a connection there for us to realize. That when we come to engage in the scriptures and we do so in the context of having our strong attention with the same frame of mind toward the goodness of God, scripture illuminates something even to the very depths of our gut in our splagizomai. And from that place, we are invited into being formed and transformed into more of the likeness of Jesus. Irregardless, what Peter does for the people is he takes what they're presently experiencing and informs how that is informed by Scripture, how this is forming in them, how their story is a part of God's story. So we have joining together constantly in prayer. We have engaging with Scripture, and here's where it gets sticky. We have them discerning the will of God together. This is just fascinating to me, so bear with me. I promise we won't spend too long on this, but this is just fascinating to me. They discern the will of God together. This brought up two questions for me that I was kind of wrestling with. First of all, why did they feel like this was important? Why did they feel like they needed to replace Judas? Like, what was the significance of that? We'll get to that in just a moment. The other thing that's always been fascinating to me is the casting of lots. Like, what is that about? That's such an interesting part of this story. Like, discerning God's will and they throw stuff? Like, that's just really interesting. So I'm going to talk about this casting of lots first because I think it helps. Amber alert. Okay. If there's anything we need to do, just interrupt me and let me know. Uh, the thing that's so interesting about this story to me is that uh, they're discerning why they need to replace Judas. Why is that important? And then also this casting of lots. So we're going to start with this idea of casting of lots to kind of uh, go back because it'll help inform, I think, the other part of that question. So the casting of lots was actually something uh, that for us on this side uh, feels a little bit kind of foreign. Like it feels like this is so interesting to me that this is something I'm removed from. I don't understand this context. Like is this gambling? What is this talking about? So the casting of lots was actually something that was done in the Old Testament. And it was a way that the people of God felt they could discern God's will because it was something beyond their control. Right? It was that they would use these pebbles or these stones. A lot of times it was also pieces of wood. And the pieces of wood would have a light or a dark side, or sometimes there'd be something written on these pieces of wood. And so in this instance, when they're choosing between Matthias and Joseph, there were likely probably these two pieces of wood with the names Matthias and Joseph. And they would throw them, and then whichever like lot fell and hit the ground first, or whichever one was face up or face down, was how they would choose who God would choose. To us, admittedly, that feels a little bit like, hmm, that's an interesting way to discern the will of God, to just throw things. 
Uh, though, I will really admit, there are times for decisions I would love to just throw some stuff. Right? Like, I would love God to just reveal, just tell me what to do. Right? So this is, this is kind of a... The, but the, here's what's important about this. is It's, it's God math. Right? Like, I kind of think about this. I don't know why I have this parallel. So, you, you know... But like an abacus, you know how they had those like kind of things? It was to just, it's like God math, though that's a lot more mathematical and scientific. This is like to try to decide how is this, how can we make a decision that's beyond ourselves, beyond our control? We can't control God. What's the best thing that we can do to figure this out? So this is God math. Now, I do think there's a significant irony that right here at the end of uh, chapter one, we have the casting of lots, which is significant and was a way that they discern the will of God together in community. But right after, a verse and two after, the Holy Spirit descends on the people of God. And I think there's a significant irony that the way and human organization and structure of trying to discern the will of God pales in comparison to the way that God helps us understand God's will. Right? Because the Spirit is imparted on the people. The Spirit is way more powerful, way more beyond our control. Right? Like we're like, okay, let's throw some stuff. And God's like, no, my very spirit, my breath is going to move within your community. This is the way to discern where I am moving. But they're right here on this precipice. And so I think it's just important to name that the reason they were doing this is because they were recognizing that God was beyond them. God was beyond their control. And so the best that they could do, the the most important thing they could think of was to cast these lots to allow the God math to take place. Now, this idea of God math is kind of reiterated, and it gets back to the first part of this question is, why did they feel like this was important? And so uh, if you look actually back at when they uh, talk about this, and they talk about Judas in verse 17, they talk about Judas, and they say, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. That's kind of a weird way to say that, right? He was one of our number. Like, why is that important? They could have just said he was one of us. But they use this word, he was one of our number. We're getting to the God math here. Then in verse 26, when they do cast the lots, it says the lot fell to Matthias and he was added, which is the same word again, he was added to the number of the 11 apostles. You see, in the Old Testament and in Jewish belief, the people of God who were back in the Old Testament that tell about the story of God, numbers were really important. Numbers carried a lot of significance. So Luke is kind of giving us these little clues by these, the, the lots, which are kind of this God math, and then this other kind of like mathematical idea is this numbering of something. Because the number was important to the people of God. Now, we're going to jump to about 100,000 feet, and there is a whole lot happening on the ground. So, like, we're going to cover a bunch and, like, we're going to blow through it. If you have questions, come and talk to one of us. There's a whole lot of story we're just going to kind of blow past. But for the purposes of this morning, the numbers were important, and specifically the number 12. Now, the number 12 was important because back in the Old Testament... The people of God were seeking to follow after God. And as they were following after God, at one point along that storyline, there were what were called the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel were these 12 different people groups that represented the totality of the people of God, of what their understanding was of the kingdom of God. And through a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of messes, there was a a split of 10 and 2 tribes, and then they just blew up everywhere. And so the the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament kind of disbanded. So there was this sense of the the splintering of the people of God. And so the disciples then are 12. 
And the 12 disciples then represent, they reflect back to the Old Testament, this perfect totality of the people of God of these 12 tribes of Israel. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel as the 12 disciples in the innermost circle of Jesus. So you see this parallel? Again, we just skipped like thousands of years. But you understand this parallel, right? The understanding in the Old Testament was the 12 tribes were the totality of the people of God, and the 12 disciples then represented the totality of the people of God and the perfect fulfillment of God's plan for the world, right? That's what Pastor Britta talked about last week. They said, is now the time that you have come to restore Israel? Here we are. We're teed up. All 12 of us, well, 11 of us are here. Are you ready to move to restore Israel? And so what happens? Peter, in this discernment process, as he's had his mind towards the goodness of God, as he's joined together in engaging scripture, he's like, I know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have 12 because it represents the totality of the people of God. We can't carry out this mission without that. Now, here's what's important. In many senses, what Peter is trying to do, I think, what the disciples were trying to do, is reconstruct a scenario for God to move. And God does move. And it's not that what they did, the human organization was still important. The election of the leader was still important. The casting of lots was still a way to proclaim something beyond their control. But it pales in comparison to the movement of God. Right? When they reconstruct a scenario for God to move and for God to speak, it pales in comparison to what God is actually going to do. You see these things of praying together constantly, of engaging with Scripture and discerning God's will. Those things are so good. They are so important. But they are good and they are important because of what they do in us, not the outcomes that they produce. However frustrating that may be. This is where it breaks down with a three-point sermon. Because I would love to tell you we pray together, we join together in engaging Scripture, and we discern God's will, and then we will have this outcome. Right? We want God math to be input-output. This equation where we do this, this, and this, and then this will happen, especially in the face of tragedy. We want this to happen, and this to happen, and this to happen, so then this will happen. And it doesn't work that way. That's not the way the Spirit of God works. However frustrating that is. And it's also liberating. This is, this is the part that I think is just so significant. This process... This process of joining together constantly in prayer, of having strong attention with the same mind towards the goodness of God, of engaging with Scripture down into our splagizomai, into our gut, and discerning the will of God together, this process is formational. It is not formulaic. This process is formational. It is not formulaic. We do not get to decide if I input this and this and this, then this will be the outcome. That's human math. That's human equation. God math doesn't have equations. God math has an invitation for us to be formed by God so that God may move and speak when God chooses to move and speak, when the Spirit of God will descend on the people and bring 3,000 to their number the next however many days between what happens here and Pentecost. 
What's so interesting to me is that this is significant, right? There is this fulfillment of the people of Israel, but it is so much bigger than that, right? This is so much bigger than that. What's so interesting to me is this seems like a pretty significant and important event, and I think it is. Do you know how many other times Matthias is mentioned in Scripture? Goose egg. This is it. In fact, Matthias is joined by eight other apostles who are never mentioned again in Scripture. Right here we have a naming of all 12, now 13, but back to 12, right? Got to have the right number. But they're never mentioned again in the rest of Scripture. That doesn't mean they're insignificant. That doesn't mean that what they did was bad. It doesn't mean that their discernment was for naught. It's just that they didn't have the full picture. Because if it went according to how the disciples thought it would be, this would be a very different book. Right? Acts would be all about the Jewish people and their formation, and we probably wouldn't be talking about it this morning. But God's plan was so much bigger, so much more beyond their control than they could ever imagine. And so they do this discerning work, but the discerning work doesn't always give us the outcome that we think. It gets us ready for something that is way beyond our control. Right? The Spirit of God comes and the rest of the book of Acts is filled with these unbelievable things that are way beyond our expectation. Right? There's this, this guy who is persecuting these Jesus followers immensely, like by far the strongest proponent against them. And he meets Jesus, and he becomes one of the greatest disciples of Jesus and writes the rest of the New Testament practically. Right? Acts is filled with instances of radical inclusion of, of Jewish and non-Jewish people joining together around the table. I loved what, what Amanda talked about this morning of joining together around food. Like, this becomes a really important part of what it means to be seeking God together in the book of Acts. We cannot control God. Thank God. Because if we could, this world would be so much smaller. It's not that the disciples are mistaken. They just don't have the full picture. And so I wonder, how is God forming things in you? How is God inviting you to have strong attention with the same mind towards the goodness of God, to engage with Scripture down into your splagizomai, to discern the will of God together, to form something in you? Not to produce a formula, however much we long for formulas. But what is God forming in you? What is God inviting Newport Covenant Church what is God inviting this community of Bellevue and beyond to? My significant hope and prayer is we find ourselves on this precipice of the Holy Spirit doing something brand new as we bear witness to the Spirit who takes center stage. It's not Matthias, it's not the disciples, it's the Spirit. My prayer, our prayer in this series is that we would discover a God who forms things in us to prepare us to be open to things that are way beyond our control, way beyond our comprehension. And as God does so, that you have eyes to see and ears to hear to bear witness to the movement of God in our midst. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you that it isn't up to us. That it isn't about what we can do for you. It isn't about 
the ways which we can be faithful in prayer and engaging with scripture and discerning your will and throwing things. But you don't call those things bad. But those things are good because of what they form in us. And so we come to you this morning, God, praying that you would form something in us. Do something essential in us. Move us in a way that we would be open to what your spirit is doing, which goes well beyond what we can control, what we can hope, what we can imagine. Give us your prophetic imagination. Give us your vision. Give us your eyes to see and your hands to move. That your spirit, that your spirit might dwell among us and that we would be faithful to respond when you call. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.